ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, or uh, you can use your bulletin. The passage is printed in that middle panel, I think. Um, before we, we jump in, I, I want to just give you one more highlight from VBS. Uh, one of the things that we ask the, the kids to do each year is uh, bring a collection for a various mission project, and we've done a bunch of them over the years. Uh, this year, we were raising funds to help rebuild uh, pastors' houses in Malawi. Um, many of you know Don Ward and are praying for, for him. Thank you for that. Well, he oversees a, a ministry to train and equip pastors in Malawi, uh, and a bunch of homes got ravaged by a cyclone a few months ago. And so there's over a couple of dozen pastors' homes who, who are without homes, like literally just their, their mud homes are gone. So it, takes, it costs about $4,000 to rebuild uh, one of those homes, and uh, these kids did it. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, and then some. Uh, and it was really great not only to just, you know, obviously do something kind uh, for a, another family, but to have them be thinking of the church uh, beyond the walls of this building, beyond our city, but overseas, and it just sort of broadens and expands their understanding of, you know, what God is doing in the world. Um, our passage here in Hebrews 8, does that for us, by the way. Uh, it, this is going to broaden, I hope, our, our collective understanding of what is the church and, and why are we here? I mean, I know we gather and it's great to be with one another, but, but there's something far greater that God is gathering us to every single Sunday and, uh, and every day that we're with him. And, and I think that's evident as we think about what's going on in heaven uh, as, as on earth. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 in Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the second covenant, the, the new covenant through Christ, uh, who has gone into the true temple, the heavenly one on our behalf, uh, to make atonement, uh, to unite us to you, to reconcile us to our our Creator and our King, and, uh, and we pray that we would understand that and live that out better. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> if, if you're just joining us today, welcome, of course, but uh, you're, 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 you're joining us in the middle of an extended discussion in the book of Hebrews. It goes on for several chapters about Jesus, our high priest, and um, this, this, uh, in, this person named Melchizedek who shows up, you know, just twice in the Old Testament and Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek and what all that means. Uh, 
We're not going to go into all that today, but, uh, but we do want to talk about how Jesus is a minister in the holy places, uh, in the heavenlies, uh, and, and how he has gone before us into uh, the true tent, uh, the, the true tabernacle, the heavenly one, uh, not, not just the earthly one. Uh, in fact, you know, there's some surprises when you compare the, the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly one that, that we'll get to in just a second. Um, so, so let's talk about how Jesus is a minister in the holy places for starters. And I want to back up just a little bit to chapter 7, if you, if you can turn there or you can just listen. But, but, but it talks about the restrictions that apply to the priesthood. Not just anybody could be a priest. And, uh, and, and so for some of you who have been on, in this series, this will be a little bit of, uh, of a do-over, but that's okay. Um, it says, when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well for one of the, the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our Lord has, uh, was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So this sort of sets us up for, for some of the, the, I guess the shock value of chapter eight. Jesus is a high priest, but he's not an earthly priest. He's, he's our heavenly priest because, in fact, if he was on earth, he wouldn't even qualify to be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from Judah. So anyway, this, kind of, this whole discussion reminded me of being in college. And I, I, um, I was that guy in college who, who thought I was like the, uh, the skeptic of skeptics. I had all the, all the clever you know, uh, re- rejoiners and, and the arguments and the questions that could stump all of uh, the Christian friends who were trying to convince me that I needed to become a Christian. And so, um, you know, among all of the other smoke that, that was, you know, I was blowing, <laughs> there were these questions, right? There were these little conundrums, paradoxes that people would throw out, you know, just being coy or, 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 or sometimes just dumb, um, talking about the things that God can't do. Like, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? You know, and, and can God, if God can do all things, can he make a bachelor, uh, can, can, can he make a married bachelor? Uh, can he make a square circle? Can he do, you know, this, can he do that? And, and that's, so th- those are kind of silly questions. But that is in no way meant to discount very sincere uh, and, and sobering questions. Like, look, okay, if God is all powerful and all good, then what in the world uh, is the answer to all the, the, the pain and the suffering and the evil that we see. I mean, those are, those are legitimate questions. Those are good questions. The other ones are just, you know, me as a freshman at JMU being an idiot. Um, but did you know that there actually are some things that God can't do? We, we actually looked at this a couple of chapters ago in Hebrews, chapter 6, where um, Hebrews is making this, this argument, and we just got done singing, right? Like all of God's promises are true. Just, just by, by virtue of the fact of making the promise, he keeps it. A promise made is a promise kept in God's economy. Because in Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about how by two unchangeable things, God's promise as well as his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Did you know it's impossible for God to lie. It's, it's contrary to his character. God is not going to do anything 
that is unholy, that is inconsistent with the truth or with love or any of those things, that's why he's God. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of foolishness to expect him or want him or, or, or test him to do something that's contrary to what's good. And it's good that he keeps his word. And that's why Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. He keeps the truth. He keeps his promises and he's trustworthy. We can trust him. Um, one other thing, there's, there's a bunch of things we can look at, but one of the other things that the Bible tells us that it's impossible for God to do is in Psalm 51. It tells us that a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Wow. I want you to think about Jesus encountering somebody who is just wrecked by the, the, the mistakes and the choices and um, the, the consequences of life on a broken world. And, and was there ever a moment when somebody came to Jesus with their brokenness and their contrition and Jesus just said, I don't have time for you. I don't want to hear about it. I, come on, get your act together and then come talk to me. Did he ever do that? No, that's contrary to his, to his being and he's never going to do anything that's contrary to who he is. It is impossible for God to despise a broken and contrite heart. And one more thing that it's impossible for God to do, it's impossible for Jesus to do. Uh, Jesus could not be a priest <laughs> in the traditional Levitical temple. It was impossible for him to do that. Why? Because it was against the law. The ceremonial law made very clear that the priesthood that served first in the tabernacle and then in the temple had to be from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, we get kings, King David, etc. From the tribe of Levi, you get, you know, the priests. And Jesus, because he wasn't a Levite, couldn't serve in the earthly temple. Uh, so, if you, if, just to kind of bring it to, to modern day, I want you to imagine the temple with all the, the sacrifices and all the ceremonies and all the busyness and all the priests, you know, in their garb and so on. You know, at the entrance to the, to the temple is a sign and it says, authorized personnel only. You had to be a Levite to go into the holy place. You had to be a Levite to go into the most holy place and the most holy place only once, one time a year. Uh, there were laws that specified who could go at what time, and, and if you weren't a Levite, you couldn't be a priest. Jesus, sorry, you're not qualified to be an earthly priest. Oh, but he's from Judah. Well, it doesn't matter. You got to be a Levite. Well, but I'm from Judah. You don't understand. Jesus is the king, right? He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's from Judah. So why can't he use his power, his his kingly authority to go wherever he wants, right? Isn't he above the law? No. He keeps the law. Well, to use maybe another argument, um, not so much to do with power, but just to do with preference, you know, can you imagine him just sort of saying, well, I know I'm, I know I'm from Judah, but I really, um, I really feel... I feel like a Levite. Uh, I, 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 I identify as a Levite, and so why can't I have access to go into the temple and be a priest, right? Well, he's not going to do that. Why? Because the law. 
He did not come to abolish the law. He says that in the Mount of Transfer. I'm sorry, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so when Jesus, when, when um, Hebrews tells us that he's a high priest, we ought to be going, wait a minute. How in the world can Jesus be a high priest? He's not a, he's not a Levite. Well, he's a different kind of priest. And, and we've talked about Melchizedek before. I know how much you love those sermons. You can go back and listen to those another time. But there's a different order. It's a heavenly order of priesthood, and that's where Jesus reigns. And, and, and in a remarkable way, too, right? Because he's not, um, he's not serving in an earthly temple. He's serving in a heavenly one. And he's not just a king. He's also a priest. He's not just a priest. He's also a king. And that never happened on earth. This was what was so different and so unique. Jesus fulfills the law, not by dismissing it, not by ignoring it, not by you know, blowing through it and overpowering it. He fulfills the law by completing it. He becomes the law's completeness and consummation. Um, we're told that in verse 1, we have this kind of high priest that Hebrews has been talking about for a couple of chapters uh, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And right there you get that dual imagery of obviously a priest, but one who's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a throne. That's where a king sits, and he's doing both. And all this goes back to the language of chapter 7. This person, Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, and and he's a high priest. And then you never hear from him again. Hebrews tells us he's without genealogy. We have no idea who he is. Some even think maybe he's a pre-incarnate Christ. Who is this guy? We don't know. I just, I don't know either. I'm not here to tell you what I don't know. But he shows up in Genesis. He shows up in Psalm 110. And then Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, is a high priest in this sort of new, mysterious order of Melchizedek. Not like the earthly priests. Jesus is a high priest, and he doesn't serve in the Levitical temple. He serves in this heavenly tent, the heavenly temple. And I'll, I'll even pause right here, because if you've been around the block a couple of times with your Bible, you might have a question right now. All right, hold on. Um, Jesus serves in, an, in a heavenly tent, a, whole, a holy temp, tent, the heavenly places. Wait a minute. I, excuse me. I thought uh, in Revelation 22, when, when John gets this vision that's just you know, glorious and beautiful and eternal, <laughs> in Revelation 21, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And then you go, oh, there's no temple. Even though Jesus serves at this, you know, heavenly temple, the temple is not a place. It's a person. Jesus is the place, the person, where heaven and earth connect, where they intersect. He's where we go to meet with God because he's God himself. So I want you to think about the, what does it mean when, when Hebrews is talking about this, this true tent. Look at, at, um, at, at verse uh, 5 there. They serve, uh, the, the priests, the earthly priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, 
He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain, right? This pattern of this, this heavenly place, this, this holy uh, tent in heaven. Um, well, we're told that that's really fundamentally fulfilled in Christ. And, you know, when we're looking at what does it mean for the earthly thing to be a copy or a shadow of the heavenly one, we're realizing, well, there's, a, there's an archetype and then there's sort of these earthly types and, and we get glimpses of what's true in heaven uh, on earth when we look at the temple, when we look at the priesthood. We get a glimpse of Jesus. We get a glimpse of what it means to have heaven and earth intersect. Um, some of you probably can remember uh, the Indiana Jones movies, The Last Crusade, uh, where Indiana's with his father, uh, Henry, and, uh, and, and Henry and Indiana are, of course, they're running from the Nazis again. Uh, those <laughs> they're, they're running for their lives. They're trying to find the, 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 um, um, you know, the grail, the holy grail. And, uh, and I don't know, they have a, they, 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 their car crashes and they run down on the beach and wouldn't you know it, there comes a Messerschmitt ready to mow them down. And so they got to figure out, you know, Indiana's out of bullets. What do they do? What do they do? Well, you know, Hen Henry Jones, you know, Professor Jones pulls his umbrella out of his, you know, briefcase and sees a, a flock of seagulls, not, not the 80s band, but a flock of seagulls on the beach and he, and he opens his umbrella and he shoes them up, and, they, and the, the seagulls go up into the air, and the plane goes through the seagulls, and he can't see, and then the plane crashes, and yay, they're saved. Um, and then Indiana's just looking at his dad going, where did you come from? What in the world? And Henry Jones says, I, I suddenly remembered my Charlemagne. Let the, let the rocks and the trees and, and the birds of the air be your armies, right? And he just kind of struts off, and... Indiana's just, my goodness. Anyway, he suddenly remembers Charlemagne, except here's a little fun fact. Charlemagne never wrote anything. Uh, he was illiterate and uh, couldn't write, but he was a pretty powerful king uh, in France and conquered a bunch of parts of, of what we now know as Europe um, and didn't need rocks or trees or birds to be his armies because he had real blood and guts kind of armies, um, which was kind of nuts back then. But remember your Charlemagne. And maybe we need to, in this case, we need to remember um, our Plato. For some of you who remember like philosophy class or you know, those ancient Greek guys, this, uh, Plato lived in the fourth century BC and he had this, this thing, he wrote uh, The Republic and he imagined Socrates and this other guy talking and, and Socrates is explaining this allegory of the cave. How human beings live most of our lives with our backs to reality, and, and, and reality as we see it is just the shadows that we see like cave dwellers living in a cave with their backs to the entrance of the cave. The light comes through the entrance and casts shadows on the back of the cave, and we're just trying to make sense of the shadows that we see. And, you know, but, but it's hopeless, right? Until, until we get out of the cave and we come out into the light and then we see things as they really are. We see the things that are casting the shadows, and then we go, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what that's about. Like ultimate reality. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis borrows from Plato in the Chronicles of Narnia, and he's got this conversation going on with Professor Kirk, talking about what happened after the, the, the last battle, and the, and the kids, you know, they all come back home, and, uh, and, he, and Professor Kirk is explaining what happened back in Narnia. What happened to the old Narnia? What, how did the new Narnia come? And he says, when Aslan said, 
You could never go back to Narnia. He meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. And of course it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life is from a dream. It's all in Plato. All in Plato, bless me, what do they teach these kids at these schools? You know, he's rolling his eyes. You should know this stuff, right? Um, well, listen, Hebrews isn't the first one to talk about like shadows and copies. Heavenly realities that find their imitation on earth. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen earthly things are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about our human bodies, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Uh, Paul's saying that our bodies are really just shadows of our real eternal bodies, and that's incredibly good news to us who have Surgery is scheduled on Tuesdays and sicknesses and aging and things like that, right? Um, so our bodies are shadows of the real thing that we will get in eternity. Um, our friendships are a shadow, a copy of the real fellowship that we have in heaven. Um, our, our marriages are a copy, a shadow of the real marriage between Christ his and his church. Um, you know, our work is a copy and it's a shadow of, of the real work we will do in a new heaven, a new earth, God's new creation. Uh, this earth, you know, is a copy and a shadow of that new earth that's, that Jesus is going to bring uh, when, when he comes and brings his, his kingdom in all of its fullness. So what we're looking at right now is meant to, to lift our eyes up, to look for something greater, to to, to try to make sense of, of what is ultimate reality, because this stuff is passing. We, we're always looking up. We're always trying to make sense of where do heaven and earth connect? Like we do this all the time, and you see this in the Bible where Moses goes up on the mountain, um, and the VBS kids were talking about this, this this week. Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, right, on Mount Sinai. And, uh, and that's where heaven and earth meet. And Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel and he, and he kind of, you know, duels with the prophets of Baal about what God is the real God. And, and they're up on a mountain where heaven and earth meet. And then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up on the mountain, mountain of transfiguration where heaven and earth meet. This is not new. This isn't just biblical. It's, it's everywhere. It's every culture, every time, every place. Now in front of your bulletin is the Acropolis. Literally means high place in Greek. And there's, you know, the uh, Parthenon, the, the temple to Athena, placed on the high place in the city. That's where people think heaven and earth meet. That's what a temple is, the place where heaven and earth meet. And that's what Jesus is, the place where heaven and earth meets. Um, the Parthenon was you know, constructed because the Greeks thought that's where they're going to kind of get um, an edge and they're going to worship Athena and she's going to you know, bless us, right? Well, then that, you know, kind of that phase died out. And then that, the Parthenon got, uh, uh, well, I guess sequestered and became a church for a while. 
And then after that period, uh, the Ottomans came in, and then it became a mosque. And so, you know, just again and again and again, we look for these places where heaven and earth meet. Humans have always felt disconnected from heaven. We're always longing to restore that connection. People, as uh, Erwin McManus, a pastor in L.A., says people are always looking for something worth believing in, somewhere to belong, and something to become. This is a part of human nature. Now, I, I know um, that there are plenty of, plenty of people who would say, no, I, I beg to differ. I don't need, I don't need a temple. I, I don't need that. I'm not looking to, to reconnect with some deity or whatever. You know, they, they view themselves a little more sophisticated, a little more modern or evolved or something like that. And they've left those temples, right? Sure. Does that, does that mean this point's not valid? Does this mean the Bible's not true or anything? No, it doesn't. Because all they, yeah, okay, they've left their temple. And then they've just gone next door. To, 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 they're still in search of the transcendent, but they're doing it now in a stadium, right? Exalting their favorite athletes uh, in, a, in, a, in a theater. Exalting, you know, their favorite musicians, uh, or they go to these places of business, these high-rises, you know, and they're exalting, you know, money. Or they go to government buildings, and they're exalting power. Uh, it, it's, the same, it's the same longing in our heart to connect with something bigger than ourselves, something greater. This, this you know, we're, we're just frankly, we're, we're bored. We're bored with ourselves. We're not enough. And it's not a criticism, it's, it's just reality. We're all longing for something bigger and greater. We're all looking out and up going, fulfill me. Make sense of my finite life. Give me something worth living for. That's what temples do. And that's what every other building that offers something transcendent does. This is why it's really, really good news. That Jesus comes to us and says, I'm the temple. I'm where heaven and earth meet. And Jesus doesn't just fulfill the Old Testament temple imagery. He's also the fulfillment of the Parthenon. He's where heaven and earth meet. He's the fulfillment of every mosque on this planet where heaven and earth meet. He's the fulfillment of every you know, Jewish synagogue. He's the fulfillment of every Sikh Gurdwara. He's the fulfillment of every shrine of you know, where every Tao and Confucianist uh, person would ever worship. He is the fulfillment of every place where people try to connect heaven and earth. It doesn't mean, uh, please don't misunderstand me, it doesn't mean that God's okay with whatever anybody wants to do in my name. He, he's fine with it, no. When Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of your temple, when he says, I'm the place where heaven and earth meet, he offers a calibration, a correction to how we approach God. He says, do it through me. And, and he offers the consummation of all of these exercises and all of the effort and all of the, the energy that we're expending trying to get connected to heaven. He says, you can rest in what do, we, what do we do at temples? What did people do at temples? Um, when, 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 uh, 
when Jesus goes into the temple and he, and he, and he clears out all of the money changers and he, and, he, and he cleans house and he makes way for people to come back into the temple so they can genuinely pray, right? You know, his adversaries go, what, what do you, who do you think you are? What authority do you have to do this? And he, and he proves it to them. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. This is Herod's temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You know, don't stop talking nonsense, basically. And he's, John explains that the temple that he was speaking about was his body. So Jesus is our temple, right? He's the place where heaven and earth intersect. He is the point of connection. He's the singularity. As he hung on that cross, suspended between earth and heaven, there was one point, the foot of that cross, where heaven and earth touched. And on that cross, what did he do? People, people would bring their sacrifices to the temple, right? To atone for sins. And as he's on that, on that cross, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he atones for our sins. When people come to temples, what do they do? They, they pray and they ask for forgiveness. And Jesus, as he's on the cross, what does he pray? Father, forgive them. True forgiveness from God himself comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, people go to temples, and what do they do at temples? They, they pray. They, they, ask, they ask for God to, to give them power over something. You know, they, they need reality to shift because there's a roadblock or an obstacle or something that that isn't the way it's supposed to be, and they need power from on high to come and make things right. What did the resurrection prove to us? That Jesus has all the power in heaven and earth, and, and he's raised from the dead, and he is wielding that power for our good and for his glory. When people go to temples, they're, they're looking for God's blessing. They're looking for deliverance from the curse. And Jesus gives us heaven's blessing. Is he your temple? Is he your tabernacle? Is he your holy place? Is he the place where we go to connect with heaven? If he's not, he needs to be. If he's not your Savior and your Lord, he needs to be. He deserves to be. It's his rightful place in your life. Come to him. Come to him and have heaven and earth connect in your life and be, be remade, rebuilt, renewed and, and have a new hope and a new future for eternity. And for all of us who have, who have made that point of connection, who have connected that dot, that singularity, that place where heaven and earth connect, if Jesus is your, your connection, how, what do we do? What, then what? What now, right? Well, I know that in the Old Testament, you had to be a Levite to be a priest. Do we got any Levites here? Any, any of you from the tribe of Levi? Done any genealogical work? Trace your family all the way back to the Exodus? Yeah. Grandpa to the 10th exponential power? Anyway, um, Grandpa Aaron. Uh, no, probably not too many Levites here. But every one of us are priests. We're all priests. If we're disciples of Jesus, if we're following him, he's our high priest. He 
deputizes us as his priests. And that means that we want to live lives that show the world that that, that connection is real. We've, we've met with Jesus. We, heaven and earth have connected in our lives through him. And that doesn't mean that we've got it all together. It doesn't mean that we, we're, we're all you know, perfect and so on. No, it just means that we know where to go with our sins. We know where to go to get forgiveness. We know where to go to have that transcendence filled in our, in our lives. And that there should be, um, when you went to the temple, gosh, well, you smelled the temple before you ever saw it. Because it smelled like a barbecue, right? I'm, I'm in my, I, I, can, I know when somebody's barbecuing, I, I'm walking the dogs like, oh man, that smells like uh, pork shoulder. Ooh, that smells like, you know, steaks. Uh, and you know, you don't see it, but you know when they're barbecuing. And the temple smelled good. It smelled like the best barbecue in the world. And, and then you go into the temple and you'd, you'd smell incense. I mean, it was just, it smelled great. How do our lives smell? <laughs> do we give off as priests the aroma of Christ? Do we show people the difference that heaven has made in our lives, the difference that the Holy Spirit makes as he bears his fruit in us, love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, gentleness. You know, people would come to the temple looking for forgiveness. Do you forgive people as a priest? Do you genuinely forgive those who wrong you? I mean, that's, that's a genuine question, and I, I, I hope you'll wrestle with that, but I can understand, too, how that question might feel like, wait, that, that, that's uncomfortable because I don't want to be in that position of authority in somebody's life. Well, try this one on them. Do you ask for forgiveness? You point to the power of your high priest who's forgiven you and freed you from the burden of constantly having to prove that you're right all the time. That insufferable burden that we bear and that we place on others. Because i got to be right. Because this world won't let us be wrong. Do you know how foreign a language it is to our neighbors, to your work uh, mates, and to everybody around you? Do you know how, how crazy you sound when you said, I was wrong, I did this, please forgive me. It's priestly language. And it speaks volumes. We're priests. We're showing the world what it means to, to be connected to our high priest, to have heaven and earth connect in our lives. Not perfectly, but legit, right? Somewhat. People don't realize all of, all of our striving, all of our running, we're trying to, trying to fill that, that hunger for what's transcendent. We're trying to bridge that gap. We're trying to connect heaven and earth. And so as priests, look, especially if you're parents, you've got kids and you're priests to them. And we've got to remind our kids as good as, as all of their accomplishments are on the field or on the stage or in the classroom or all the pressures you know, to do all the stuff that they see all their friends doing on social media, just, just keep reminding them that's not your identity. That's not your, that's not your rightness. That's not where your transcendence comes from. 
It comes from your, your high priest. It comes from Jesus. Keep meeting with him. Uh, and in our friendships, and, and I hope I'm speaking to spouses, right? Spouses should be friends. In our, in our friendships, we got to remind each other all the running that we're doing, constantly trying to keep up, constantly trying to advance, try, constantly trying to feel like my life is successful. We have to remind one another, run after Jesus. And let our lives be a, a reminder let our lives tell the story of the one who came down. Every other culture, every other time, every other place, we, we, humanity wants to, to, to rise up. We want to ascend. We want to, to go to the top of the mountain. We want to meet God and show him how, how hard we've worked, how much we've accomplished to get there. But God says, I don't want any of that. I've come down. And I'm with you. Do our lives tell that story? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for being our priest. Thank you for being our temple. Thank you for being uh, the place where heaven and earth connect. And we praise you for, for revealing your, yourself to us, for giving us uh, a place to go with our sin, a place to go with our our need for forgiveness, a place to go with our longing for blessing, a place to go with our, our, our need for power, a place to go to make sense of, of this world and all the ways that it's not how it's supposed to be. Uh, Lord, thank you for putting eternity in our hearts. Thank you for calling us to, to reach out to Jesus and to worship him and to follow him. And we pray that you'd find us faithful as, uh, as under priests, as as priests in the order of Jesus uh, to, to tell our, our neighbors and the nations about him and to show them the difference that it makes to have our lives connected to heaven, to, to want more of your will to be done, more of your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name.